I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to a special edition of Catalyst for Change, The Race for Boston. Over the last few weeks, we have introduced you to each of the mayoral candidates and allowed them to share their vision for Boston. Today, you will hear from John Barrows. John is the former Chief of Economic Development. He worked in Mayor Walsh's administration and previously ran for mayor in 2013. Before working for the Walsh administration, he served as the executive director of the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative and also served on the Boston School Committee. He is a lifelong resident of Roxbury and Dorchester, where he currently resides with his wife and four children. John, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, it's so fun um, to talk to you about this. I met you a couple of years back when you were serving as the chief of economic development with Marty Walsh. And it was it was fun to work with you then for sure and to get some kitchens built in Boston Public Schools. And uh, it's fun to see you running for mayor now. Maybe could you talk just a little bit about your background? You grew up in Boston, right? You've been here since the day you were born. Is that right? Oh, that's right, Jill. Uh, it's, uh, well, first, let me just say it was an honor to work with you on the kitchens. Super important. So thank yeah. you for your leadership there with BPS and, and sticking through it. You got firsthand uh, experience on what it takes to do reform and change uh, uh, in the city. Democracy is really simple to work with, is what I learned. Is that Was that the takeaway? Yeah. No, it's, it's that's right. <laughs> that's a good, good summary by you. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. No problem. Um, so yeah, so I was born uh, born in Roxbury uh, to immigrant parents who came to the United States looking for opportunities. And, and my parents, you know, they defined opportunities as good educational opportunities, right? If if they can come here and give me good schooling, they they felt like they you know got um, that that I got better than what they did, right? Uh, yeah. Coming from a poor country in West Africa. I, uh, I then got involved very early on in my community. The first uh, event I got pulled into, my aunt pulled me into a neighborhood cleanup, and that was transformational because it was part of a cleanup that was organized by an organization called the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative. Oh. And eventually, you know, their, their whole mission was engaging local residents to help lead the transformation people wanted to see in their neighborhood. Um, and so they pulled me in and I quickly joined their youth organizing effort, uh, became the first youth organizer in the neighborhood for the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative. Um, and then the rest is, is history. I've, I've been doing public service and uh, community work all my life. That's so interesting. So your parents came here from Africa. What, why Boston? Why America? Like how, what was their whole decision process? Uh, great question. So uh, back in the early days of the United States, whaling was really important, right? And I just, I was just rereading Moby Dick, Moby Dick and sort of the whole whaling industry and New Bedford and what happened there. And it's interesting. It talks a lot about uh, dark-skinned Portuguese people. And they were probably Cape Verdeans. Uh, Cape Verdeans were known as fierce whalers. And so they were brought to the United States very early on. Uh, many of them as, as free men and women uh, coming to do some work uh, here in, in the industry. Uh, my father followed that tradition. He was a nurse on a boat um, when uh, uh, that was the way to travel to the United States. He came back and forth on a number of, uh, of visits and was given the opportunity to stay at one point in the 40s. Okay. Um, and he took it. Um, he uh, then started in the Cranberry Bogs on the Cape. Said he hated it. He didn't last. Um, luckily, he found some work elsewhere. But then there was the migration from the Cape to Boston. Yeah, uh, and my my parents were part of that migration, came to Boston, and uh, and settled here in Roxbury. 
Oh, so interesting. And do you have siblings? I do. I'm one of uh, I'm one of six. Um, I am right in the middle. Uh, so I like people and I like to be around people. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> So you 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 ended up serving as the executive director of the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative, which really did some tremendous things for building the Dorchester that um, is today, and, and the Rox, is it Roxbury that is today. Is, no, yeah, it's, it's a neighborhood. It's a neighborhood that has natural boundaries that include Roxbury and parts of Dorchester. Okay, I was right, and so, but, but anyway, that that initiative was really around housing, right, and protecting the neighborhood as it as it stood for and with its residents. Is that is that kind of a? Yeah, that's exactly one of the major outcomes from the initiative. We yeah. we started by saying, hey, what does it look like if we were to you know, lead the effort to build our neighborhood. What would we want? What we would do? What would we? What do we do? How do we protect from um, displacement? How do we think about things like being able to build, but build so that people here can enjoy? It? Um, and so, housing was obviously a big part of that. Uh, playgrounds, parks, um, urban urban agriculture was huge. Um, continues to be big in the neighborhood. And then, you know, uh, making sure we have the right schools making sure we had safety on our streets, making sure people had food and, and jobs. So you can imagine a very comprehensive approach. At one point, we actually did some system thinking in the neighborhood, and we felt that there were three driving issues that we focused on for a very long time. Um, housing was one. Mm -hmm. um, uh, economic security and opportunities in the neighborhood was another. Mm -hmm. And then education was the other one. And, and those three really helped to drive, um, you know, a really thriving ecosystem in our neighborhood. So was that was was you being on Boston School Committee just a natural extension of your work with the with the organization? That's that's absolutely right. It it, it really was. It grew out of the community calling for certain things out of our education system. I didn't I I didn't I never thought of joining the 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 Boston School Committee, but the work that we were doing was gaining steam, and we we were working closer uh, closely with the. Menino administration at the time, yep. and school department. And then at that point, we successfully worked with the city to, um, um, what's the name of it? The uh, we, we, we put in a successful application to the federal uh, Department of Education for the Promised Neighbors, Neighborhood Initiative. Hmm. And we brought in over $11 million to help create a Promised Neighborhood um a uh, set of community schools in our in, in partnership with with the city. We were the lead organization. There were another thirty six organizations that partnered with us. Huh. Um, we did things like creating uh, data sharing agreements with BPS. Um, we launched efforts like No Child Goes Homeless after recognizing that the homeless population in our schools were way too high. Um, so so we did a number of things, and 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 I think at that point we really decided that's where the school district should go. We should really be wrapping around our schools, creating supportive communities, supportive organizations, sharing information, coordinating efforts in a way that that gets us more impact for for any investment we do around our children. Um, yeah. And uh, so I got on the school committee to try to do that. That's amazing. So it's very much like what Jeffrey Canada did and thought about um, with the Harlem Children's Project and really integrating the education community and the school itself with the neighborhood and thinking about all of those things, housing, safety, economic prosperity, all of those things being wrapped into the success of children. That's exactly right. And in, 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 in fact, there's no, there's no other way to think about it, but then to say, 
you know, there are social determinants to academic success for our children. Sure. Right? We, we usually use those terms for health outcomes. Right. It's the same thing here. If a child is not stably housed, um, you can't expect the child to show up to school ready to learn. You know, uh, one famous line by a parent was, how, do my, how does my child do homework if we don't have a home? Um, you know, there's, if the child is not, you know, uh, fed well and there's food insecurity issues, you know, it's hard to learn. It's hard to read when you, when your stomach's empty. Um, one of the huge stressors we found was the lack of employment or stable employment in a family. You know, it creates all types of issues that then transfers over to the child. And in fact, in those days, um, there was a study that was released, uh, showing that a child is wired differently in the early days. If in fact there is financial stress in the home, one of the leading causes for for issues to early childhood development. Yeah. So now thinking about the Boston going forward, and sitting in the mayor's seat, how do you think about things like housing? Well, let's just start with housing, right? Because we, I mean, you've touched on so many things, but Boston, it's a, it's incredible, right? Because Boston is such a wealthy city. And yet it's incredible because we can't seem to house all of our residents and create, you know, a, some sort of balanced playing field, right? A starting point for all residents of Boston. And so how do you think about that? What do we need to do? How do we do some of it with this additional income that's coming into the city from the federal government because of COVID? What are your thoughts? Well, I think, I think great questions. Um, let's go back to the school scenario. If, in fact, we're going to make sure that you know, our, our, our children, their families, uh, those in our schools are doing well, we need to make sure, as, as you suggest, that housing is a strategy that we employ, but employ in coordination with schools and our school children. There's, there is no reason why Boston can't wrap our services and what we do around our school children and their families. So what does that look like? We need to assess every school for housing instability, understand who needs what, and begin to grow our programs and coordinate our programs in a way that responds to that. Last year, uh, the mayor announced a thousand new vouchers uh, mm -hmm. that would be supported by the, the city. I think, it was, I think we might be the first major city to do that. Most cities use federal funds. And so we saw our lack of federal funds coming for that, and the city stepped, uh, stepped in and did it. Well, we need to be that creative for our children. If, in fact, there is an un, un, unstably housed child, we mm -hmm. need to use some of those vouchers. We need to use some of our housing stability program that exists or and be creative and create new programs that make sure that, you know, our students have a chance to learn. Ready yeah. to learn is super important, Jill. So I'd start there. And then, you know, housing production in general is critical. We need to, you know, you know crank up housing production you know, provide more levels of affordability in housing so that, you know, uh, you know, more families that have opportunities to be able to provide to, to find stable housing, more young professionals, more of our workforce have an opportunity to find stable housing. And then we, we, we've really seen a lack of production for our elder population. We've got a bubble, we've got a bubble coming and uh, we need to do more. And then we need to do more for the disability community. When you look at the numbers, uh, with the lack of funding in, by the federal government in the last, you know, um, five years or so, we've seen an issue and we've got to correct that issue. So, okay. And, and connect the dots for me then with education, um, because you were, you were on the school committee, 
you, because what you were talking about really is, is poverty, right. And, and the effects of poverty, not being able to access proper housing, being homeless. Um, there's also issues around not being able to access proper healthcare and, and not, and really maybe not being able to access great schools. And we, ha I think we have, you know, sort of an issue and I don't know if it's different than it was when you were on school committee than it, than it is now, but we, we have a lot of very low performing schools in the district. And so um, when you talk to people, depending on where they live, they have a very high percentage chance or a very low percentage chance of getting their kids into what they would deem an adequate school. And so again, there's all this money coming into the district, both, both at the city level and at the school level. And how do, like, how should the mayor be thinking about what we're investing in with those dollars so that we have effect, you know, that goes on beyond kind of a year or two years? Yeah, no, great, great, great question. So I think it's important to set up the, here's what we do to support our children to be ready to learn. Here's what we do to support the schools to be the best learning opportunities we can provide, right? So it's hand, it, it goes hand in hand, both supporting our families and our children and make sure that, you know, at, that, that, there's a, that they have a shot, right? That, they, that they're going to school ready to learn. Um, and, I, and, I, and I really believe that one of the efforts that I would do, and, I, and I've been championing it ever since I was at DSNI, was making sure that we have a um, seamless zero to, uh, uh, you know, birth to career pipeline, <clears throat> particularly in the zero to five range. There is nothing more we can do to make sure that we are addressing ready to learn than to work with our families, look with our work with our childcare providers, and childcare is an issue, right? So then you're, you're you're really addressing a number of things at the same time by providing the supports young people need through every stage of development and prioritizing knowledge and skills building for people that need to be able to thrive in school, career, and life. Um, that's where I think we should spend the money. We should spend the money to build out a program for our children that is connected to child uh, child care. But child care should never be seen anymore in Boston separate than than, than our education system. The, the child care we do should be about early child childhood development. We have a we have an infrastructure out there of, of providers. We this with all the disruption that we've seen, this is the time to step in, set a certain standards for quality, set a certain standards for wages, set a certain standards for training, set a certain standard for what we expect from the early childhood space, and then organize it in a way where it's connected with BPS. As soon as a, 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 a mother gives birth in Boston, they should get a library card, they should get a placement in a child, early childhood program, they should get the, you know, the curriculum around um, uh, read, talk, and play, which we know are the, are, the, are the basic blocks for early childhood development in Boston, and have a support network around them that is, that is showing them what they should be doing as, as their first educator for the child, and then also supporting them as, the, as a parent in what they need to be successful. I would argue they should also have their placement on where their child's going to school. And we should start that early and there should be a relationship and maybe there's after school programs or teacher meetings immediately or, you know, some kind of communication with that school and that parent so that we are in fact are building community well before uh, the child hits the, uh, uh, the early years of the school. But then the school, we know schools are successful um, because of strong leadership. Um, there's no question about it. Um, time after time, we've seen that strong leadership um, it uh, yields results. So we have to support our school leaders and the teachers in the school to make sure that there is, you know, each school 
has exactly what they need to to be their best. And every every school is different, right? And so, how do we make sure a school leader has the proper you know sort of supports um, uh, from professional development supports to an uh, 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 an operations team to yeah. try to make sure that they are you know getting the right data, using the right data, using the right information, and reacting to that information? You know, I remember doing a number of turnaround efforts at schools. And the way you do a turnaround effort is you bring in a heavy team of people, each in their each having their own expertise, and they're bringing it to the school. And they're gonna and and we all we always in, in, uh, wrapped around the school leader and said, "What do you need? We're here to provide it, right?" Um, that's what we need to do on a consistent basis, not on a let's come in and do an emergency save. Um, that we need to wrap around our schools and make sure that we can do more. I remember as a school committee member, Jill. One of the most uh, uh, one of the most important uh, policies that we passed when I was on a school committee was making sure we had a student weighted formula in how we did budgeting yeah. um, to make sure that the money followed the students. It was super important. But yeah. then also, second part of that was empowering the school to have some autonomy and responsibility in designing the schools. So one was providing the money for the type of students you have. The other one was saying, hey. Let us know how you want to use that, and you make those decisions to do it. But that's an active conversation we should have with the school leader in a way that is not passive, not a report, here's what you've done, but here's what I'm planning to do. Well, what else do I need? Well, maybe we're going to get you some somebody to help you know, drive attendance. We're going to partner you with this organization because they do that well, and that's an issue we see. Or maybe we're going to help you find someone that's going to do uh, to improve your kitchen and your, and your, and your fresh foods, right? Yeah. Whatever it is. We've got to be more responsive as a district and more consultative with, with, with school leaders and teachers on what it is we need to make them successful. The best school leaders fight for them on their own. They come in, they knock down doors, they say, this is what I need. I need it right now. I'm not taking no for an answer. Or they'll call somebody like me when I was executive director of the Dudley Street Neighbor Initiative. John, I need you in my school. I need you, you know, you know, once a week in a meeting because I need to work with you on organizing parents, right? And then I'd, I'd be there, I'd show up. I remember Janet at, at um, um, oh, drawing a blank on her school name right down the street from me, but but she called and I'd be there. I, you know, there was no missing that meeting. Uh, yeah. We help our student, our, our school leaders do that uh, on behalf of them. So, okay, but that, so what you're talking about is trust. So, so talk to me and I love that. I actually love so much about so many things you said. And I wanna go back to, um, meeting women where they are at the point of delivering babies. But before we do that, well, actually in combination with that, because because to execute a program like that, which I, I have always felt that way, that you know women are incredibly receptive right at that moment because we've just been handed like the most responsibility a human can have, right? In terms of caring for another human and making so many decisions for them for a long period of time. And so I can imagine how well-received that would be by so many women, maybe not by all women, to have someone trusted come in and say, here's some things to get you started. But that also requires a form of leadership at a mayoral level that where you are, you know, trusting the deployment of that initiative across hospitals and, and other facilities around the city. And so as a leader, as, as the mayor of the city, how would, how do you think about how you would run, you know, just to take that program, for example, there's so many different things I'm sure you want to do, but how, how do you think about leading and what sorts of people will you bring in to help, you know, run the kind of city that you'd like to see? 
Yeah, those those are all the right questions. And, you know, for me, um, you know, none of the areas that we want to drive impact are are absolute and siloed, but we treat it as such. Right. Yeah. And so what we need to do is build the right kinds of tables to bring the people together that we need to to address some of the intersectionality in the work that we're talking about. A, you know, a new parent should have health care, should have you know, anything it needs around education, should have anything it needs around sort of, you know, public schools and and neighborhood safety and, you know, jobs and what you're doing next. You know, what's happening in your in your workplace? Are they paying you for the leave? Do you have appropriate leave? I mean, there's a series of things that we've got to make sure come together to support our new parents. You know, I was I was I was um, uh, lucky enough to help start an organization called the Boston Parent Organizing Network that I co-chaired for a number of years. And, you know, parents end up being the most important factor for success. You know, even even when you look at it from a from a, you know, sort of. A study standpoint. Studies show time after time, if you can engage parents in their child in, in the child's uh, life and development um, in their educational journey, you're going to have some impact. Let's empower those women immediately. And you're and you're right. I remember any sort of first time you have a child, second time you have a child, third time you have a yeah, child. Four, yeah. <laughs> I've got four of them. Right. Every yeah. time we're hungry and we're trying to figure out, am I doing the right thing? What else can I do? How do I? How am I going to provide this child with the best that they can possibly have? You fall in love every time and you're there, right? You're ready to to give everything you can. That's when we need to be available to those parents to make sure they have everything that they need right there. Yeah. Okay, let's switch gears for a second. Talk about the thing that you've been in charge of for the past four years, which is economic, well, longer than four years, actually. How long were you chief of economic development? Yeah, seven plus years. The whole yeah. time that Walsh was in there. Okay, and, and Boston's booming. And, and, and so Boston's booming. We got hit in the face, sideswiped, pummeled by COVID. Um, how do you think we're doing now? What does Boston need from an economic standpoint, a business standpoint to recover and thrive after COVID? Yeah, no, great questions. You know, so we, we were, we were booming. We were booming. And, you know, a lot of people said, well, those were the boom years. We're not for every city, right? This is not, and I, and I remind people all the time, um, you know, not every city was doing well. And then, you know, investment in Boston and companies picking Boston is not an absolute. It's not like there were years before that when we weren't booming, when we were trying to give things away. We were trying to ask people to, to please come to our city, to be part of this ecosystem. We finally got it right. We finally, we finally did some things that made sense. And so companies were bringing you know, jobs here. We're deciding to grow here. And it doesn't just happen naturally. And they can choose to go somewhere else. It's a really important factor. For in, yeah. uh, us thinking about how we move forward, you know, investors can choose in investing elsewhere, both from a real estate standpoint, but also from a startup standpoint and what companies they invest in, et cetera. I remember early conversations with uh, uh, venture capitalists, and most of them were asking their companies when they invest in them, they said, no, the right ecosystem for you is in the West Coast. Well, we wanted to make sure that they were going to say to their companies, the right ecosystem for you is actually in Boston. Right, and we were very aggressive in doing that, and and the mayor needs to be that aggressive coming out of the block. He needs to make sure, or she, that, and and in this case, I think it's me. I need to make sure that uh, when 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 um, you, you you take the office, that you are saying, here's here's Boston, 
And here's where we're going. We're open for business. Here are the kind of things we want to get done. Here are the kind of things we're going to do to make it you know, easier for you to come do business with us. Um, it's really critical. And I've done it time and time again. I did it when we helped to lead the charge to bring GE to Boston. I did it when we tried to pitch Amazon in trying to come to Boston and really proud that they just announced 5,000 jobs coming to Boston, uh, to the South Boston waterfront. Um, by the way, I think we won that competition, but we can have that conversation some other time. Uh, but, but, but there are some major choices in both regulation and what you choose to invest in, how you show up, and whether you're really going to try to make it that Boston can be a place that is um, uh, supportive of business and business growth. It's not an automatic. There are real decisions that are being made that need to be made for Boston to get out of this pandemic and kick the economy back open, which is you know part of your question. We need yeah. to invest in what, what I call the amenities of our city. Uh, we need to invest what makes this place special. The placemaking elements, the, the the food services, the the restaurants, the place that people connect, uh, the public realm, um, the bars, right? The things that have been really decimated and hit hard by our economy, the cultural centers, the performing arts centers, uh, the reason why the people come to the city. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, people go to Miami for Miami Beach. People come to Boston for history, for culture, for um, you know, sort of a real different feel, a different experience. City needs to lean in very, very uh, uh, decisively and boldly to kickstart kick, kick that part of our economy, get people back to work, and get those businesses open again. And do you? And I wonder what your point of view is, having sat um, in City Hall. You know that Boston that you paint a beautiful picture of, and and I think too it'll come back and and be thriving, um, is juxtaposed against a a Boston where 75% of kids who attend Boston public schools live in poverty, at or below poverty. And, And is there a way more so than we have been able to do in the past, even though, you know, we've made progress over time to create a city that isn't two things? both the beautiful city with unbelievable potential and the city that holds so many folks who literally are bumping up against, you know, needs for food and shelter and safety on a daily basis. And how do you, I just wonder how you think about that, having sat in city hall and I'm sure grappled with lots of conversations on that. No, absolutely. You know, fundamental to my belief for a competitive economy, a competitive Boston is the belief that we need to use all of our human capital, all of our human human assets. Yeah. And so that means inclusion. That means bringing more people in, providing more people opportunities to, to, to get good jobs, giving them trainings and then connecting them to those jobs, uh, allowing more people in our city to uh, you know, start up businesses, small businesses, grow their businesses, and that those businesses are connected to opportunities, whether it's public contracting or private contracting with the private sector. The Boston, you know, so 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 equity and inclusion is not just the right thing to do; it is in fact the strategic smart thing to do for our economy. We are a better economy. We are a place that more people want to do work with us. We'd be a place where more talent wants to come to and people want to come to our city for more opening, if we're more inviting, if we're a place that actually values differences and values different cultures. We have the building blocks in Boston, but we've got to, we've got to you know, sort of really activate those, block, those blocks to make sure that Boston is seen as a place that people, that, that, that talent of color wants to come to. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people across the country, you know, and they'll make a comment like, Really? You're from Boston, right? Why? Yeah. Why are you still there? 
you know, yeah. and it's like, no, no, here's, here are the strengths of our city. Here's what we've got to offer. And they look at me puzzled, right? Really? Right. And as you said, we've made some headways. When I was a young man, a young black man, there were neighborhoods I couldn't walk into in Boston. Uh, feared for violence, fear for, and in fact, I, I, I have personal experiences and stories I can tell you about, you know, sort of, uh, you know, those encounters. But, yeah. but Boston's different. It's, it's not the same Boston of old, but we've got, some, we've got a long way to go still to make sure that we're bridging the gap between white wealth and black wealth, where, you know, the average net, net median income, the net median income, not average, the net median income of a black family is $8. Net median income of a white family uh, in, in Boston is $247,000. That kind of, that kind of uh, gap is not good for our economy. That kind of gap is not good for our future and what we're trying to do as a city. Yeah. So I, it was interesting because you came out and said that you would be interested in bringing guaranteed income to Boston and joining a mayor's for a guaranteed income. And, and we support that organization. And as you probably know, we um, heavily participated in the pilot in Chelsea, which is a guaranteed income program um, where there, I think there's over 2000 people um, receiving about $400 a month through that program and guaranteed income. And, and it's interesting because the spending data just came out on that. And, you know, spoiler alert, most of the folks uh, spent their money on food. Um, they spent the majority of money locally, which is interesting. And, and the city manager said he could feel it fueling the local economy in, in the depths of, of COVID. Um, so I thought that was a bold thing to say. I was excited to see you say it. Tell me how you think about a program like Guaranteed Income and, and what it could do for the city. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I didn't know, Joe, that you guys were involved in the Chelsea. Uh, oh, you didn't? I did not know. That's congratulations. That, uh, oh, yeah. um, I know, I, 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 I remember reading the coalition. I just, I just forget who was involved. So congratulations on that. I think that's exciting. And the findings, congratulations on the findings, but we've seen those findings, right? In different places around the country. We, totally. This is- uh, yeah, this It's is, not new news. It's not new news. It's not, but it's good news, right? Because some of us are hopeful, in fact, that we can help uh, make sure that people that are um, living in Boston and working in Boston, you know, can just work one job, right? And still have the ability to make important choices for their families. Uh, it is critical, in fact, that the federal government join this conversation. So I'm, I'm excited about what I'm hearing. And I think Boston can play a leadership role in this and help figure this out. We've seen what uh, uh, additional funding could do during the pandemic. We've seen that, that, in fact, people are making good decisions during the pandemic and that it's also helping the economy. Um, so so th these are the findings you're finding also in Chelsea. I'm excited to be, I think I'm the only candidate right now calling for uh, guaranteed minimum income, but yeah. excited to be excited to be in the lead on that. Yeah, well, I, I do. I, I have to say, you know, it's the problem with being poor, as Mark Twain once said, is that you have no money. <laughs> and, and that ends up leading to a whole bunch of other things that allow you to not thrive in the way that people who have money do and can and, and are just allowed to, but it doesn't, you know, but we're not really any more different than that as humans. Um, so, so in terms of running for mayor, meeting, you, I'm sure you're out meeting people, you've spent your entire life in the city. What, do, what, what is your vision 
for Boston. You ran for mayor before. So you, you've, I've, I'm sure, been thinking about this for a very long time. And so what do you want to see the city become over the next decade? Yeah, great question, right? I, I Let me first be honest. I, I can't be the candidate that's, that's going to come out here saying I've always wanted to be mayor. I grew up in this city and I never thought I could be mayor. I, I, uh, it was not an option. It, 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 um, I tell you, even as a, as an adult, um, it didn't, it didn't cross my mind. I, I, you know, I, I'll tell you an embarrassing story. When I, when I, uh, went to Dartmouth, uh, first year in, uh, some of my colleagues asked me about the, you know, this race on the Charles river. And I said, what race on the Charles, what well, the regatta? I was like, Oh, uh, what is that? Right. I mean, it's just very, very embarrassing. They're from uh, Boston, right? I'm from Boston, but am I, right? Was I, right? Did yeah. I really feel ownership of the city? Did I really feel like this city was mine? And the answer is no, um, but I've grown- um, I, I think we all feel that though, right? Like just to, not to cut you off, but I think, you know, I, I've lived here for you know, almost two decades and I thought that you could walk everywhere in Boston and until I started doing work with every single school in Boston public schools and realized like some of them are a 20 or 30 minute car ride away from me That's right, right. It, so we just we don't all know our whole city I, I totally understand your point yeah no we don't right but we need to feel like we should and we need to yeah. feel ownership and then we need to feel like the city sees us and values us right that and i think that's the vision the vision is for you know all bostonians to feel proud of this place being home not being questioned why you know, you you chose Boston. You know, how could you be there as part of a, 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 a you know, what we're known we're known as one of the more racist cities in the country. Um, we need to eliminate that. We need to be a place that's supportive of of all all kinds, all backgrounds, LGBTQ community, women, women leadership, women in business, people of color in business, black men. Our black men um, outputs are not better than other cities. Uh, our brown and black men outputs are 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 are, are need to be worked on. So, so I'd love to make a difference in Boston and make it a place that is supportive of more people. I love it. Okay, we're gonna do a quick lightning round of questions about Boston to just to help us get to know you a little bit better. Um, where is your favorite place to go in the city to just relax and kick back? Um, I'm gonna do a little self-promotion. Uh, <laughs> so if you, if you haven't, Jill, yet gone to a nice restaurant on Bowdoin Street, uh, oh. it's called Restaurant Cesaria. And uh, we opened it uh, in 2003 in a part of Boston that didn't that didn't know full service restaurants. Um, mm -hmm. And it's it's a place with live music, and uh, sometimes we'll have poetry readings. Uh, we no used to have, before the pandemic, Boston Arts Academy students would go play often. Um, it's a super cool place. Um, maybe in a you know different day, I'd love to love to host you there. But yeah. I'd love that place and had some has have memorable times there. Oh, that's so amazing. Yeah. Um, what's your who's your favorite sports team? Oh wow, you're gonna put me on the spot before I as I'm running for mayor. That is. Um... <laughs> you, love you, you love them all. I am such a homeboy. I'm such a Boston fan. I love yeah. my Boston teams. Yeah. Um, and what about, uh, do you drink coffee? I love coffee. Okay. Where, where's your favorite place to go get a cup of coffee? Recreo. It's, uh, yeah. if you haven't checked it out, uh, they've got a shop in West Roxbury on Center Street. Amazing. But they mm -hmm. also have a, a coffee stand in City Hall. 
Um, and uh, they do amazing coffee, but the story behind the coffee is amazing. They, the coffee is imported from uh, the owner's father's farm yeah. um, in uh, Central America. And they do sustainable coffee growing and fair wages and everything's compostable. It's just a fabulous operation with really good coffee. Okay. I need to check that out. That's yeah. amazing. Okay. Speaking about City Hall for a second, all right, an example of brutalist architecture. You've worked in City Hall for quite a while. What's yeah. your favorite thing about City Hall? <laughs> um you know, I did. I did come to appreciate the exterior architect of City Hall over time. It does grow on you. It does grow on you. It does grow on you. The interior needs a lot of work. Um, mm -hmm. We need to make it warmer. We, the acoustics are the worst. I don't know if you've ever been in a in, at an event at the mezzanine. You can't hear anything. So a ton <laughs> of work needs to happen inside City Hall. But the architecture of the hall, it it it, it is now City Hall and. It's, it's special. Uh, and so I, I would say that. Yeah. And do you have a favorite restaurant? Well, I guess you just talked about, is that your favorite restaurant or do you have another one? Yeah, it's Eat a night? great restaurant. Uh, uh, you know, the, another restaurant that I really liked is Shanty on Dorchester Ave. Um, oh. Big fan. Um, the ownership, it, they do amazing work around the city. Uh, the Dorchester Ave Shanty for me is, is, a, is a gem. I love it. John, thank you so much for taking this time today to talk with us. Um, any other final closing remarks? Um, you know, I, you know, as you ask me questions about Boston, there's so much to say. And, and I think mm -hmm. let me encourage uh, anybody who's listening to this to, to go around Boston and, and, and visit our different um, small businesses, restaurants. Uh, 50 Kitchen is another one that can easily say what an amazing food um, right there in Fields Corner. Um, so there are a number of gems like that. In fact, I was really proud to help lead a campaign, a marketing campaign called All Inclusive. Uh, it was just launched and it's yeah. inviting Boston to come back. It's inviting Bostonians, first and foremost, to as, as the city's coming back to visit these different neighborhoods. And, you know, it's a, it's a regional campaign, so it's not national yet. Um, it's inviting people who can drive, who can walk, who can take the public transit to come in and check out these different neighborhoods and see what we have to offer. I think that's my last thing. Let's let's do that all together. Let's support locally and let's get our economy back in track. Love it. Thank you very much for spending time with us today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to my conversation with John Barros. If you'd like to learn more about John's campaign, please visit our blog. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston. Have a great day.